withheld the truth. You are not alone in this universe. We have lived among you, hidden, but no more. If you resist us, we will destroy the world as you know it. Your world must not share the same fate as Cybertron. Whole generations lost. Megatron must be stopped, no matter the cost. What you're about to see is top secret. Do not tell my mother. But be warned. These reviews will contain spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. This isn't my war. Not yet, but I fear it soon will be. Today we're discussing Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, starring Florent Androra, Ted Andre, Francis Antoine, Brandon Ashworth, Tohada Asuka, James J. Atkinson, and Quentin Auger. Directed by Michael Bay. I'm Who are those people? I didn't recognize a name there. What are you talking about? Well, those are the ILM artists who did all of the CGI work. <laughs> and really, aren't they the stars of this film? Indeed, they are. I, I agree. You really I, want I, me to say there also are some humans running around like Shia LaBeouf, John Turturro, Josh Deschamel, Tyrese Gibson, and Megan Fox? No, those aren't the stars. You talk about the stars, it's ILM. But Arnie, as the now play a new guy here, I just freaked out because I thought I watched the wrong movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to get fired after show three. <laughs> Stuart in LA here. Hey guys, it's Jerry. I gotta admit to a, a small white lie, guys. When I said I was a Transformers newbie and hadn't seen any of this before, I guess I have to confess, I've seen this movie before, sort of. I was invited to go see it at a drive-in, and I don't know if you've ever been to a drive-in, but it's a very fun experience out here in L.A. There's one in City of Industry, and I thought it would be really fun to see a movie about cars sitting in a car. <laughs> That's very I, meta. I love the Vineland Drive-In. I'm going to just give them a plug right now. They do a great thing. But they know and I know that one of their broadcasts is inferior. And it happened to be that the Transformers broadcast, you could only hear the sound effects. You could not hear the human voices when I watched Transformers Rise of the Fallen. So it didn't take me very long to realize I was not getting the movie. And although we proceeded to sit there for the two and a half hours and watch things blow up and I would periodically get out of the car and go walk to the concessions or whatever, I think it's a far cry to say that I understood or really watched the movie. Stuart, I've watched this now twice in my home theater 
And it's hard to say that I understood the movie. So <laughs> I think I'm we had the same experience. I was wondering if, yes, now being able to hear the audio this week when I watched the movie again or for the quasi second time, I might have preferred my first viewing. It might have been more fun sitting in the backseat <laughs> of a car, laughing and talking with friends and occasionally looking up when something exploded than it was trying to actually follow Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. <laughs> Now, I actually saw this movie on opening day, which I think was like a Wednesday. I didn't know what to think, and I actually saw it exactly one week later. I had weeks with like back-to-back business trips and literally had nothing better to do than go see this movie twice. This is now my third viewing, and I'm with you, but I will say this just up front. You pick up a little bit more each time you see it. Well, let's put it this way. I actually somewhat followed it this time. Wait a minute, Jerry. You're the guy that saw the animated movie 40, 50, 100 times. (laughs) You have only seen this movie three times? Yes. When it came out on Blu-ray and DVD, I didn't want anything to do with it. Wow. Okay. Well, this is going to be an interesting discussion. And this is my second time watching it. After the lackluster experience of watching the first one the first time, which I, I, again, hoped that I changed my opinion of coming into it this time. But after seeing it, when the second one came out, I saw the trailers and I'm like, this looks better. So I'm going to give it another go. And my wife, Marjorie, she's like, are you stupid? It looks the same to me. (laughs) But I'm like, no, no, I think I'm going to give this one a shot. And we'll get into what I thought. Jerry, why don't we get into this and you start us off with a plot summary? Alrighty. I, I do find these Transformers movies as much as I am the fan. This is quite the chore sometimes, but let me give it let me give it a whirl. I agree. Watching these is yeah. quite a chore sometimes. <laughs> All right. I'm just curious to know what I watched. Please tell me. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'll answer that here, but uh, let's let's give it a go. Well, Revenge of the Fallen begins with a typical voiceover and a flashback in which Optimus Prime tells us of the Primes, the ancient leaders of Cybertron. Primes created a sun harvester which extracts energon from the suns of lifeless planets. When one Prime insisted to use this on Earth, he was cast out as the Fallen. And now we enter the events of the movie. Two years after the events of the last movie, we see Sam heading off to college to live a normal life, which is quickly dismissed by his roommate Leo, who runs a conspiracy alien website. However, Sam finds a shard of the AllSpark in his jacket, and he now houses all the information of this AllSpark, including the location of the Sun Harvester that the Primes hid. Megatron is resurrected and meets with the real leader of the Decepticons, the Fallen. He sends Megatron to go after Sam to extract the information he needs. Optimus Prime finds and rescues Sam, but is killed in battle, which sends the Autobots into hiding. The Fallen sends a message to the world telling them to turn over Sam or he'll continue to destroy cities. Leo takes Sam to his internet rival Robo Warrior for help, and it turns out to be Agent Simmons. Simmons recognizes the characters from his Sector 7 files, but it's the small Decepticon Wheelie, who Michaela captures earlier in the film, who recognizes it as the language of the Primes. This leads them to the Smithsonian to find Jetfire, an ancient Decepticon who changes allegiance away from the Fallen and gives Sam clues on how to find the Matrix of Leadership. Believing that the Matrix can resurrect Optimus, they contact Lennox to bring the body of Optimus Prime to Egypt. They find the Matrix, but it turns the dust right in Sam's hand. The Decepticons discover Sam's location, and an all-out war breaks out. Sam resurrects Prime with the Matrix, who then goes after Megatron the Fallen. Prime kills the Fallen before he is able to activate the Sun Harvester, which is located beneath one of the ancient pyramids. The film ends with Optimus Prime sending yet another message to any Autobots who may be out there. Okay, so let's start at the beginning, and by the beginning, I mean the very beginning, 17,000 years before the Age of Christ. <laughs> you can't, you just can't get too much more in the beginning than that, can you? I mean, 
other than perhaps the Big Bang, I- I'm curious. Now, we see that there were Transformers on Earth, I believe Africa, in 17,000 BC. I'm wondering, did they transform into the first wheel? Well, the movie later told us that Jetfire's great-grandfather was indeed the first wheel. <laughs> no, they're clearly robots, and that's what I'm wondering. Like, why would you model yourself after something that won't be invented for Eon? <laughs> well, I think that's their normal form, robots. Oh, sure. I mean, that's how Transformers are. Whatever they transform into, they're robots. So no matter when it was, it's not like there's some weird biological entity that came to Earth and decided to be a robot of all things. Okay. Yeah, I think when we see the Primes and the Fallen, particularly in that opening scene, we don't really know what their, as the Transformers fans would call it, their alt mode. We don't even really know what they turn into, but clearly they're going to have some form. It's kind of like when we found Megatron in the first movie, he transformed into a Cybertronian jet. He hadn't yet converted into anything. So they're like kids waiting to find out what they're going to be when they grow up. (laughs) I mean, what did they have to scan? Maybe this is where Dinobots came from. The panther that's running around later. (laughs) I knew this much. A beginning like this harkens back to horrible memories of Alien vs. Predator. (laughs) And I do not want to go back to Alien vs. Predator. So instantly, I gotta say, I was unpleased by where we're picking up on uh, the second installment here. Yeah, I mean, even as a fan of the first movie, to some degree, when I first watched this, it kind of puts you on guard because it's clear that, okay, this second movie is not really tied into the first movie. Maybe it does a little bit and we can talk that, but it seems obvious that we are creating a brand new scenario that is out of nowhere. And it turns out The Fallen does have a little bit of a history in the Transformers fandom prior to this movie. It's very brief, though. He was kind of introduced in some comics in 2007. So it's not a long history. And seeing this movie, it was the first time I ever heard of him. So it put me in a position to where I was very skeptical from the beginning. I actually didn't have so much of a problem with it. I mean, part of it really bothered me in that if Megatron came to Earth in the 19th century and basically started the industrial age, why did nothing happen mechanically for the 20,000 years before that? But more importantly to me is that I don't see why the scene was necessary. I don't know what robots from outer space would gain from anything here on Earth, including enslaving us. I mean, it's not like we were making them AA batteries or anything. Like, we did nothing for them except provide amusement as they stomped on us. Arnie, I I agree with you a little bit because we get some of the same background from Jetfire later in the movie anyway, but it it is sort of like Optimus Prime's giving us the history lesson prior to the movie starting. But we kind of get that the Fallen wants to eliminate any of these creatures from Earth because the other Primes will not harvest the energy from the sun of a planet that has creatures already living on. But whatever keeps the robots coming back for more on Earth, I still don't get, even as we're now finding out that in modern-day Shanghai, they're creating fake toxic spills to evacuate areas so they can attack more Decepticons that came from where? Because there's no more shard to make. Gary? (laughs) Good question. So they just keep flying down? I mean... The only thing I can pull out of it, and the movie doesn't tell us, is that Decepticons came for that first movie, and perhaps they just all didn't take place in that battle. Maybe some of them are still coming down, because obviously the the Fallen are is established outside of the Earth, and maybe they're just coming one by one, because they have their mission from the Fallen. 
Now, mm-hmm. I know I'm not the fan here, but I actually took it as their mission was to find the shard. Like, they knew the cube wasn't completely destroyed because you got Soundwave up in space hacking communications, and I thought that they were on the hunt. They were looking for something, and when they find the shard, they then have a hard target. But they are out there looking for the shard and trying to do what they eventually do which is revive Megatron. That was what I thought they were still doing because they even have the military guy going, what do they want? And I thought the answer was the shard. Okay. So you're looking for something that was last seen 20 miles outside of Las Vegas in Shanghai. Eh, Everything is moving towards China these days. Your point is very valid that the Decepticons should not have any reason to believe that there is a shard left. The whole premise that this movie is just starting off of actually doesn't make a lot of sense. Why is there a shard left? There's two shards left, right? (laughs) I don't even understand that, and I don't remember it that way, but yes, why? Roll out. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could give you good, solid movie answers. I mean, the best I could do is just guess and, you know, help the movie out, but... I mean, Sam's got one in his shirt, the, the military's holding on to one. I guess it stands the reason that some of it chipped off during the battle, but we're never told. That. Okay, all right. You know what, I, Jerry, I don't want you to be an apologist for this erratic script, but I'm just asking because maybe you might be able to pick up on something because I'm sure you followed this more closely than I did that I missed. But if there's no answer, then I'm happy to just inflate the tires and keep moving. I will tell you right now, there's a lot of things about this movie that completely dumbfounded me. The other thing is, I mean, obviously the Fallen is the true leader of the Decepticons, which, news to me... Which I hate! That's (laughs) terrible! (laughs) Alright, I actually liked it. It made so much sense to me. Megatron's Darth Vader, now we have the Emperor. I went with it. From a Transformers folklore, though, that has never been the case. And in my head, they could have easily done this movie just with Megatron. Or just the Fallen. I feel like you needed to have one or the other. I, I don't feel like the three tiers of command that end up being Starscream with Megatron above him, with Fallen above him, really are a force to be reckoned with. You know, the only thing I'll say about the Fallen is if you're going to go that route, I do like the fact that they gave him sort of Tutankhamun flares on the side of his face. He kind of does look like an Egyptian. So that, that was kind of a nice art direction touch. It was a good from a design standpoint. But I have no real affection or feeling for the Fallen. I'm perfectly happy to go with whatever bad guy they want to go with. And the last guy was good enough for me. I mean, if they're going to revive Megatron, it should be Megatron. I actually disagree. I think Megatron was the baddie last time. Megatron failed. We need a bigger bad this time. We need to up the stakes. So what could be better than Megatron's master. I like this idea that you're raising the stakes. I like this idea that there's a secret leader that we never knew about. This really worked for me. Then let's not spend half the movie trying to find the old guy. If we got a new guy, let's stick with him. But so much of this plot is about finding a shard that can revive the old guy who's not as powerful as the new guy. So, you know, there's lots of tangles and knots here, and I don't know which ones to try to untie and which to just carefully step over and try to find the entertainment value. But I can say this, if it's Revenge of the Fallen, it's got to be about the Fallen. They've got to feel like the main bad guy. And, well, frankly, I think he cameos in his own movie. (laughs) You're not wrong there, but my reason for bringing him up now is he knows that the knowledge in the cube can't be destroyed. And he's the one masterminding the fact that there are Decepticons on Earth. So 
I'm also thinking that they may be hunting randomly. I mean, keep in mind, last time they were hitting Qatar looking for this cube that was in Vegas. They obviously just keep going to the wrong side of the planet for where Americans store everything. But their method of searching seems to be primarily attack and hope we stumble across it. So the fact that the Fallen knows, at least if nothing else, that there's knowledge in the cube that was transferred. But knowledge is not what it's really looking for, right? I mean, the cube is meant to recreate life. I guess that was Megatron's plot. The Fallen just wants to be able to turn on the sun-destroying device, right? It's a different MO this time? Yeah, he wants to destroy the sun to get the Energon because they're trying to have baby Decepticons and it's not really working out. Oh, that's what those stillborns were. I couldn't figure that out. Yeah, they were growing their army. And, I'd, you know, what I'd say about the Fallen is you have such a big plot of what Megatron's doing in the first movie with the AllSpark. If they wanted to make this movie up truly about the Fallen's revenge, I didn't see it. I'm not sure where the Fallen got any revenge. I mean, this isn't Empire Strikes Back where the Decepticons win this time and you feel like, wow, things are dark and it's looking really bad for Optimus. They just didn't use it very well. I could have maybe went with it if it was done better, but it still felt like it was Megatron's show and why does he keep going back to this Fallen guy and doing all of his work? It just, it didn't pay off for me. This, to me, could have easily just been Megatron resurrecting and then carrying out the rest of the plan all over again. Let me ask a few more questions about the Fallen, and then I think we can get to the other characters. Where is he located at? What planet is this? When Megatron goes to talk to him, they're actually on outside of Saturn. Okay, so they're in this solar system. Yes. And he's there because he was cast out by the other Primes way back in the day who are no longer around and who Optimus is not enforcing. See, I don't know why he's exiled himself because the Primes hid themselves with the key. It's not like they ran him off. I didn't get that from it. Did you guys? They used the word exile, so I took that to mean with some kind of force. But whatever was enforcing him to be in the rings of Saturn or wherever he is, is not clear to me. And I kind of would have liked to have known what was preventing him other than the fear of Optimus from setting foot on Earth and looking for what he's trying to get. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Well, rolling on. I still think of this story and I still want this story to be about the humans. So I'm happy to return to the story of Sam Wickwicky and to a lesser extent, Michaela. <laughs> what do you guys think about where we're picking up with these guys? Where are we picking up with these guys? It seems like they're about as cardboard as they were in the last movie. The parents are still there, both competing for the Eugene Levy Prize, and now there's two dogs. I don't. <laughs> well, Sam's going to college, and he's the first Witwicky to go to college, which would beg the question, what does he want to study? Why would he move across to the other side of the country? If I didn't know any better, I would think that he was purposely moving away from Michaela so that he could break up with her, because... California has plenty of very fine schools that he could attend and still live at home and see her. But the fact that he has to go to Pennsylvania now is, well, it's rather suspicious to me. You know, the one thing I'll say about Sam's little subplot at the beginning is that To me, it was just so far-fetched. I mean, when you've experienced what you've experienced and you have this relationship with these Autobots like he does in a very unique fashion, and then the government and the army forms this nest 
to have the interaction and you know the they fight alongside with the Autobots. I just never believed that, that Sam could possibly go off to college and do anything other than be part of this Autobot battle. It's almost like he was should have just looked at this as an opportunity to go be part of the CIA and be part of this or you know whoever's really interacting with him. It's like you're going off to college to study after everything you've experienced. I just never bought it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, how is he going to take a science class and keep a straight face? I mean, there's no reason and there's no ambition. We've never established Sam as someone that wanted to be anything other than a guy with a cool car. Well, he's got everything that he wants and he's going to leave behind his alien friend living in the garage (laughs) to go live in a dorm with some wingnut running a conspiracy site and possibly studying astronomy or or maybe he's just getting his general electives done. I don't know, but it certainly doesn't feel logical to me that this would be his life choice two years later after the last Transformers. I felt bad for Bumblebee in this movie. You mentioned him living in the garage. That guy really got the shaft. When last we saw him, his hood was getting dented. And now he's like the family dog. First of all, he lost his voice again? I don't understand that. He had it back at the end of the movie. We all heard him. And now he's so excited via the Pointer Sisters to be going to college and being denied and weeping. He is kind of pathetic. And truly, he doesn't do much more in the rest of the movie. It's not his adventure, for sure. But Sam finds this shard in his sweater while he's packing for college. And of course, the toaster goes nuts and immediately has a gun. So what do they do? They call Bumblebee. Bumblebee, save us. We're going to die. Bumblebee does what he's supposed to do and saves them. And they're like, you bad Bumblebee, you blew up the house. Go in the garage. I'm like, he's not your pet. This is an advanced life form that you are treating like a humping dog. And there were some of those around that got better treatment than poor Bumblebee. I know. You're a space alien. Come to Earth to protect humanity. All your other friends are flying around to China and fighting with soldiers and doing really cool things. And you're being castigated and thrown in the garage and told, I'll see you in four years. I mean, it just... It doesn't make any sense. He's got to be rethinking his uh, decision to stick with Sam at this point. And I mean, he's crying. I don't understand Bumblebee's necessary attention. I realized Sam saved him last time and they saved each other or whatever. But here at this point, it's like, all right, you're going off to college. I got me some work to do saving the galaxy, which is why I came. And she can't go with him because she's too busy helping out the convict father that was put away for a Grand Theft Auto. Let's face it. This woman can't memorize her lines, let alone attend a college. She's lucky (laughs) she's a pretty face. I'm not saying she should go to school with him, but can't she set up shop over in the East Coast? I don't think these kids really do want to be together. I think that they're looking for an excuse to break up. And this is one of those situations where, you know, like you fall in love with the love of your life right before you're about to do a major step that takes you away from everything that you know. It's just a way of being sentimental. These kids don't belong together and we haven't wanted to see them be together. They've had their moment and let's cut them loose, particularly Michaela. Let's let her go. And with the meta knowledge as we record this preparing for Dark of the Moon, knowing that Megan Fox didn't return, every scene with the father going, you're not going to be together forever. And when the phone rings and Sam goes, who could that be? For all I know, it's Muffy. You know, it's like, yeah, who is the next chick? Because it ain't Megan Fox. No, and I shudder to think if she had returned, how orange she would be. Did you see how much more (laughs) her skin tone had changed? Both her and Shire are like, did you fall into a fake tanner for three days? Like, how do you get that orange? 
obviously the theme throughout the movie is that he refuses to say the L word. He will not say I love you to her. And yet he's defending that relationship to the dad who sounds like he's the one trying to talk him into exploring other things. And I just never got that little subplot. I did, because I think it's actually stated, Sam thinks that Mikhail is going to wander off while he's away at college, but he can keep her on the hook if she wants him to say he loves her. And so as long as he doesn't say it, it's a way of continuing it. And at the risk of accusing Michael Bay for a character development, <laughs> it is in the dad's perspective. He's the one that's pushing to go on a European tour. He's the one that's thinking about the bigger picture, the broader perspective. You know, he's in the mindset right now of taking in new things. So why wouldn't he encourage his son to do the same? Oh, and to be clear, I understand that point from the character's perspective. I just don't know why it needs to be in this movie. That's what I don't get. I don't get why, Stuart, maybe it's just an attempt at some character development and watch them yes. from beginning to end, but it's just, to me, the movie had bigger problems to focus on anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, admittedly, you know, we talked about last time how there was the character moments courtesy of Spielberg and the action noise and fury of Michael Bay. There's almost no Spielberg influence in this one. In fact, I don't think he even stopped by the set once. <laughs> there doesn't feel to any of that stuff that we were talking about with E.T. illusions and all of that. I, I wouldn't have known he was involved totally feels like a Bay creation at this point. I saw Spielberg because in this movie, not in these early scenes, but you know which one I saw is I saw a very pale imitator of Raiders of the Lost Ark here. So there is some Spielberg. It's later on. I don't feel like that was Steven leaning in and saying, hey, you should do what I did 30 years ago. I feel like that might have been the screenwriters or Bay saying, ah, what worked for him? Let's <laughs> let's copy that. But uh, we'll get there when we get there. My point is that the human moments are totally gone here. Any tenuous connection I had between the characters and how I felt about them and how they felt about each other, now it's evaporated. They are literally all machines running around making noise. And the machines still act more human than Megan Fox. Yeah, that someone really does need to reprogram her. A smile doesn't look like that. <laughs> you mean you were looking at her face? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, she's really, the, you know, the goodbyes, all of that. It just, it is painful this time. I mean, listen... I mean, I love the scene where Sam is like having a heart to heart with Bumblebee and the camera cuts outside to show us Megan Fox stripping. <laughs> <laughs> and we can see where Michael Bay's mind is wandering to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's real sad. These two won't be together. Did you check out that smoking bob? <laughs> you know, I actually say, though, I was liking the father son character moments and even the mother son. I liked that little thing. I know it's certainly not. Carol Ann and Steven and Poltergeist, but it's a good little rapport. I was actually shocked to find myself enjoying these characters return again. Here's the problem. I was feeling like anytime I was starting to just feel that way, just barely, something would happen on screen to distract me. As you mentioned, it's either Megan Fox changing her dress or Mojo and the other dog now humping each other. I mean, I felt, he's got his mojo working. Yeah, I just felt like it was a movie that couldn't even take its own moment seriously. And Bay has a really obnoxious habit of layering everything with music. Like, I just felt like not only does 
does the camera never sit still. Not ever do we have a quiet moment between people, but he uses really cheesy music to try and fill in the gaps that he's not getting out of his performances and out of these scenes as they're written. It's like they're trying to fix it in post, what they didn't get during the shooting, and it's bad. I did like Shia in the original, and now I'm feeling like, eh, he's not that interesting. Why are we going back to him? Well, to continue my critique of Michael Bay's entire oeuvre through the prism of Transformers, sometimes his use of music works incredibly well, especially when he's using familiar songs in a way to evoke a specific mood. Once again, I return to Armageddon as a good example of this, although Aerosmith's terrible ballad from that not being a great example. But the rest of it, when they bring in ZZ Top's LaGrange and some of the old classic Aerosmith stuff, it evokes a mood. And again, I said it last podcast, Bay is about the shorthand. He's not about creating a scene he's about evoking a faint scent that you've seen before so that you he can move right along so i think music is one of his great tools i honestly wonder if he was hampered this time by the product placement because i could not get that green day song off the screen and it's from the album 21st century breakdown that had just come out in the summer of 2009 so that bothered me because it felt like it wasn't trying to evoke a mood so much as it was trying to go hey kids buy green day but and buy a car while you're at it i mean you know the product placement here is pretty brazen i get that what i resented is not that they were trying to sell me green day but that the green day was not how I felt about these moments that they just, they're the wrong musical cues. They're lazy and they're pandering. That's what I'm saying is if, if Michael Bay could go to his CD collection, he probably wouldn't have picked the songs that were here. Okay. Well, I don't know. This is only my second Bay, but I'm not impressed with his musical choices. I have to say one thing about the music in this movie is that I had to, at times, make myself pay attention to what kind of music was being used because I didn't even notice at times that there was music ever in this movie. It was either so drowned out by the stupid jokes and the explosions or it was just so dull that I didn't pick up on it. There's a couple times like what you're talking about, Arnie, that I did notice that pop song and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a familiar song from the radio, but I didn't think that anything about the music stood out of this at all. I can't even hardly comment on it. It didn't jump out at me that much. I had the opposite reaction, Jerry. I felt like he kept using the same musical cues. Every time we see Michaela, Green Day. Every time we see the parents, we hear this, like, timpani, boop, 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 boop. I found it distracting and lazy. I felt like, oh, you're trying to fix this in post. You're trying to insert feeling in moments that you did not capture during the filming. But regardless... They're not breaking up, but they are splitting up, and he's handing her that shard bit so that she can keep it for a rainy day? (laughs) All right, so the shard creates machines, which Bumblebee has to blow up, so the government is coming to investigate. I think he gave it to her so the government wouldn't find the shard. Right, so that the firemen don't figure it out when they're going through the house. However, Optimus Prime comes to him a little bit later in a great graveyard and has been like i really need your help yeah which i don't even know and let's let's talk about what he needs their help for because the president of the united states has now decided the decepticons are coming to earth just to hunt autobots and so he's about to evict autobots off the planet not a, a bad decision i would add but one that is characterized as foolish 
Well, foolish in the sense that, you know, Optimus gives the great speech and says, well, if you're wrong, and really, they kind of were. They're not there because the Autobots are there. They're there because, for whatever reason, they still think there's a way to find the shard and the information they need because they want to get to the Sun Harvester. So ultimately, Prime's right. They were pointing their finger in the wrong direction. Sure. But I'm saying, from a standpoint of a U.S. president, <laughs> if robots kept coming from outer space <laughs> and shooting each other, rather than form a task force to run around with them, I might ask them politely to go away. <laughs> well, no, because what happens is Galloway has to come in and, you know, summarize the entire first movie and everything that happened in between so that Soundwave can pick up on it and know exactly what's going on. All right. I, I got a couple questions about Soundwave. But the first question I have is when they're doing this communication with Galloway, Lennox says, I want to allow you to speak to the leader of the Autobots, but I can't show you him, but he can speak. Why couldn't they just show him? I mean, you're obviously <laughs> talking to people with top level clearance. You're going to let him speak to them. It's not like Optimus Prime could mesh in a crowd. No. I have to sense as an international force, there's Brits there and too. It sounds like what was resented was the fact that this task force, this NEST, as it's the acronym goes, standing for what, by the way? Networked elements, supporters and transformers. <laughs> Thank you, Wiki. It's a terrible acronym, mind you, but... <laughs> it, it is, sure is. It's horrible. So, yeah, it sounds like Nest has more power than the U.S. government, and that might have been what ruffles Galloway and, by proxy, Obama's feathers. And they do a name Obama here. I mean, it is called outright. This is his administration. Do you think Bay's a conservative, or is it just convenient? It's like you said last movie, trying to make it happen now. I don't necessarily think it was anti-Obama any more than the ding-dongs were pro-Bush. Perhaps. But that said, I feel like he is playing into a common stereotype of liberals being weak and not wanting to fight. And I don't know. Bay definitely seems to like to side with the Jarheads. For some reason, they're still in this movie, and I do not know why, but they are still playing a major role. I don't know either, because admittedly, this plot goes nowhere. Mm -mm. If they banished the Autobots and then the Decepticons attacked and the humans were screwed, that would have been worthy. That would have been a plot I've seen a million times. But here, they're like, we want you off the planet. Well, Prime dies before they can get him off the planet. So, none of this ever goes anywhere except yet another authority figure for Bay to mock ruthlessly. Yes, and they make the decision to disband Nest after the Decepticons start blowing up aircraft carriers and threaten major cities. It's like, no, this is the time you might actually want to use their help. Like, you banish them when they don't seem to be helpful, but when you don't have the manpower to stop the evil robots, you side with the good robots. It's all very convenient, and you're right. It's just another way of, of saying that anyone in authority is foolish. Now, the one thing I'll say about the humans in here from the military, I like Lennox still being in it, because you kind of have to have that carryover. Like, he's been there, but I gotta say, Tyrese was absolutely worthless in this movie. He doesn't even look the same. Like, did something happen? Like, did he gain a bunch of weight? Or, I don't know. It just, he didn't even look like Tyrese anymore. It is almost kind of like he didn't get in the same military shape. Like, maybe he didn't film very long. But, I mean, it's like he was there to make smart aleck comments about Galloway and then call in the airstrikes. Which, granted, is his role, but... The two were pretty much cameos at this point. Didn't it feel like... I don't know if they were too busy doing other stuff or whether... It was just an obligatory thing to squeeze in as many characters from the first one as we could, but 
in my opinion, rightfully, this movie is far more streamlined than the last one. Where the last one we were complaining, you got the Jarheads, and then you got Shia and Megan, and then you got the hacker group with Anthony Anderson, and then you've got so many of these groups going on, the Autobots, the Decepticons. This film actually smartly streamlined the cast. And as such, oh, well, the Jarheads are a bit of a casualty. They become a cameo. I'm fine with that. I wouldn't say this movie is streamlined whatsoever. I feel like there are more (laughs) characters now, not less. And what did they eliminate? The hackers. That's the only thing. And they've replaced it with offensive robot coonery via mudflap and skid. I don't feel this is <laughs> streamlined whatsoever. There are fewer factions, but then the factions that are there have gotten far more complicated. Yes, I agree. The script, it should be said, this movie was more or less rushed in production, and they didn't have a finished script. I think that's reflective here. I mean, I think all of the plot holes, and they feel like a lot of half ideas or somebody's idea that didn't get picked up in the next draft, but it still got filmed. This thing is littered with half-baked plot points and not streamlined whatsoever. If anything, the writing here is much worse than the last time. All right, I'm not going to say the writing is better. I just meant, like, one. Once you get out of the college, once the action occurs, in this beginning, we do have a lot more characters, especially when we see the replacement hackers who are just Shia's roommate and his employees, because all college freshmen have staff. But once they get out of the college and the action starts, it felt to me like the core group of characters was much smaller, is all I'm saying, as far as streamlined goes. But that took some time to do. I mean, it should be pointed out, the Decepticon plot is three-pointed. They're going after Sam because he has the knowledge of the cube in his head, and their means of doing that is Alice, this female Decepticon. But Michaela's got to deal with Wheelie, and then they're, at the same time, attacking military bases with Panthers and what have you, and <laughs> who vomit up, you know, marbles that come alive to try and find another part of the shard. I, I feel like streamlining would have been about, there's one target and we're going after them. Why would you send a panther into a top-secret military base? You should have sent the panther after Michaela. I mean, you would have gotten what you wanted much quicker, and we would all probably have enjoyed the process. (laughs) (laughs) This movie, yeah, it's too long in every part. And I'll admit that there were about halfway through the movie, I started to count down clock as I was waiting for it to please end. So I wasn't saying it was streamlined in every respect. Again, I was just down to the number of characters. But I felt like the one who gets the shaft the most is Soundwave. Now, Soundwave was one of my favorite characters growing up. I loved him. I loved that he had little minion cassettes and everything. What hit me with this, and Jerry, I have this question specifically for you as the Transformers fan. How can this series possibly be fulfilling for you when you have these characters who you and I both grew up as G1 fans? And when you see the characters on screen, they aren't their G1 characters in any literally way, shape, or form. Bumblebee was a bug. Now he's a Camaro that can't talk. Personality different, form different, same name. Soundwave was a cassette player. I liked that. I had a Walkman. I had a Soundwave. You know, it worked for me. Now you have Soundwave, who is this weird tentacle octopus thing that gloms onto satellites, the same only in name, and they got the voice actor back. But how is this fulfilling to you? Because to me, that's not Soundwave. That's using the same name. That's like if I went up to any woman named Marjorie and kissed her just because I happen to be married to Marjorie. 
Well, let me respond to Soundwave in particular first. The only thing that is somewhat fulfilling, you got to keep in mind, by now I've seen the Beast Wars and what they do to characters and Robots in Disguise and all the cartoons that have been on Cartoon Network, and they do this so badly to where they will take some characters and totally morph them into something else that you're used to it. It's amazing to me, knowing Michael Bay films, that they got Soundwave as close as they did. And, you know, as we were joking during the uh, animated movie discussion, about what do you do with this Soundwave who's a cassette player in the year 2005, right? That's kind of funny watching that now. I kind of liked how Soundwave was still a key, I guess his role was telecommunications. It felt like it was still in the realm. Bumblebee, I'm just glad they got as close as they did. He shouldn't be that large of a car. He shouldn't even be that good of a fighter. You know, like later in the movie, he's just taking skids and mud flap and throwing them around like they're nothing. He's kind of like the one in charge where, you know, in the car. They are nothing. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but in the cartoon, he was the little guy. So it's definitely jarring, and I don't mind these little changes if they're done well. I'm going to go with Jerry on this because I do agree. You have to modernize it. Technology has changed since the mid-'80s, so you got to rethink some of these ones that were very specific. You can't have a cassette recorder. And I agree. If it was a cassette recorder and now it's a satellite in space, I'll go with that. That's kind of cool. I mean, I have no affinity for these characters. I couldn't even follow them in that cartoon movie. I don't know if Soundwave or Shockwave or whatever wave was in that movie, but I actually thought this was one of the cooler-looking Decepticons this time around. I liked the way that he snuggled up to <laughs> U.S. satellites and tentacled them. Well, you know, Arnie, what's funny, you said they got the voice actor, Frank Welker. What fanboys gripe the most about with Soundwave is that they just didn't synthesize his voice. That's actually just his Dr. Claw voice, and they didn't give it the Soundwave treatment. And, and so that's what people really gripe the most about, not him being a satellite. I noticed that, because I could actually understand what he was saying, unlike the cartoon. <laughs> and I appreciate that. As someone that doesn't need fundamentalism in my Transformers, I'd rather hear him than hear how I couldn't understand him back in the 80s. Please don't misinterpret what I say as saying they need to be a slavish devotion to the cartoon. I'm just asking how you can say, Soundwave! I love Soundwave, and I'm so happy to see him here, because to me, he's not. That's all I'm saying. Ah, I hear that. I would rather have seen that satellite get the information, transform into a robot, and join the fight. Not just be stuck up in, in space the whole time just directing traffic. That, to me, was the part that was more disappointing is that he didn't do anything but that. But he does get the information, and they do get the shard. And then the third prong of their approach is Alice. And I'm not one to usually look at a movie and immediately put, say, racist agenda or sexist agendas behind the filmmaking or to deconstruct to that level and start saying this film is offensive to this, that, or the other group of people because I think you can do that too easily. Recently, they tried to say X-Men First Class was misogynistic. I mean, it's too easy to pick apart any property from any given angle. That said, first Megan Fox and now Alice, wow, Am I the only one who wants to see a woman in this film who just isn't a horny sex pot? You're absolutely right. The female characterizations are not good. Uh, and that extends to RC. Did you notice she's in here barely? She's a biker chick gang of holographic girls on bikes. Was that RC? It yes. was. The red one was, yes. I noticed the biker chick gang 
of holograms, but I did not recognize RC. I believe the word you're looking for is objectify. Yes. That is what women are to Michael Bay's Transformers. They are to be thought of and ogled in the same way you would a hot car. They are a machine to run and a motor to rev. They are not thought to be complicated people. And that is a problem, certainly. I think anytime when you write anybody, any group, any sex, gender, whatever, it's not pleasing to see something so reductive. That said, it goes beyond sexism here. I feel like most types in the Transformers world are pretty broad and rather ugly. You're getting to the twins, aren't you? I can't wait to get you. I mean, in the end, it's not like I have anything against seeing attractive women on screen. But yeah, when Alice shows up and her instant thing is, I'm going to try to seduce Sam, not in a cute way, but in a vulgar, I'm going to throw you down and strip you naked and you're going to take it way. I'm just like, wow, Megan Fox and Alice. There are no Sarah Connors in these movies, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely not. It's less a problem than that, I guess, because this does feel like a 12-year-old boy fantasy. I come to kind of expect these kind of characterizations. I had a more logistical problem with this. How are Transformers able to emulate flesh? Like, I feel like that is a line that shouldn't have been crossed, and I'm wondering if it ever has before. Shouldn't they always be machines? Like, the fact that it looks exactly like a human, that's a problem for me. You can't emulate everything. You have to be able to at least say, I'm made of these parts, and I can twist my parts to resemble something more innocuous. But you can't tell me that a killer robot with tongue tentacles could, you know, fold itself into Maxim CoverGirl. And I'm going to second that and say I didn't have a problem with them projecting holograms of drivers in cars that aren't there, but I do have a problem with being flesh. Jerry, is there a precedent? Kinda. Alice is referred to, not in the movie, but just online and in sites and whatnot, as being a pretender. And a pretender was a concept from, oh, I'd say maybe two seasons of Japanese animation past Generation 1 when it ended here in the U.S. And there were some toys released called Pretenders to where, Arnie, more like what you were saying, they could do like the holographic projection of, hey, I look like a human, but when I need to go into my robot mode, I push this little button on my wrist and then I turn into my giant robot form. But it's unanimous here because, to your point, I don't mind them projecting something that can fool you, but when you feel and the robot should be far heavier than a human should be, and Sam is interacting with her, you know, to say the least, he should be able to feel and just understand that this isn't right, but it's all perfectly normal. And I think it's ridiculous. This is one of the things that I just could not stand about this film. And certainly you see it as they did it more just to get the sex vibe in there. Did it really play into the plot? Now they could have went after Sam any other way. And, and they eventually did after they killed Alice. Yeah, they gave Bumblebee another person to pee on, I suppose. <laughs> and I thought Bumblebee was being awfully rude. I would have gone with it if Bumblebee had known she was a Decepticon. But when Bumblebee slams her head into the dash, I'm like, whoa. You don't think he did? No. No, no. Otherwise, he wouldn't have let her go. He would have, instead of playing your cheating heart and super freak and brick house, he would have been- And Jaws theme. <laughs> yeah, the Jaws theme too. I think he was just saying she's a predator, not she's a Decepticon. I think he would have been playing Red Alert Klaxons if he thought she was a predator and doing more than just spraying on her. 
Yeah. yeah, I think Bumblebee would have driven them off somewhere, transformed, and then blew her up <laughs> if he actually knew. And half the dorm. But I did like, perhaps the only thing I liked about Alice, beyond just objectifying her, was that when she has the tongue tentacle, the end stayed fleshy pink. Yes, I, I, I did <laughs> exactly. find that somewhat amusing. Even, you know, if this had been something new, I could have just turned my brain off and go with it. But didn't we see all of this in Terminator 3? I felt like the idea of a seductress robot woman is in Battlestar Galactica. It's stale by this point. They're not even at the forefront of a kitschy, fun idea. They're like stealing from things we all saw last summer. It's just lazy. And so much of these ideas feel like recycled junk. Yeah, I concur. But to circle it back to your original point, Stuart, the whole reason Bumblebee even showed up was so that he could take Sam to Optimus in the graveyard to ask Sam to speak to the president. That's why he came? Yeah. He's like, Sam, we need someone to remind them of the special connection Autobots and humans have. Yeah, he, he wants Sam to be their mouthpiece. A, <laughs> a college freshman. Got, yeah, Obama is really going to listen to Shia LaBeouf. That's really, he's taking those calls. Come on. <laughs> That's absurd. If anything, you give that role to Linux. He's the one fighting alongside of them. That's the person that should be the ambassador. This is stupid. This is really stupid. I had a real problem with it. I had as big a problem with this as I did with the sneaking around the house in the first movie. That's why it goes back to my thoughts earlier about Sam just going off to college because if it's well known that Sam was truly the hero that saved the day, he's not running off to college. So it's like, give me one or the other. He's either worthy to represent the Autobots to international government bodies, or he's just a stupid kid going to college. Don't try to blend them here. Mm -hmm. But the Decepticons do get the shard and bring back Megatron from the deep sea. I actually liked that they disposed of him in the deep sea and guarded him. It actually seemed like people in authority were doing the right thing. It's just the Decepticons were too powerful. And I also liked in that scene that they order another Decepticon to be taken apart for parts to revive Megatron. I like that kind of cannibalistic nature. Yeah, especially when it was clear that that Decepticon was not a willing participant. <laughs> yeah. But one thing hit me in this resurrection scene. The CGI in this is shoddy. In the last movie, Stuart, you were saying up and down that this film deserved to win uh, the best visual effects Oscar. The second one does not have the same quality. Underwater, it didn't feel like underwater. And just overall, the character models of the Transformers in this one didn't move right for me. They didn't move like they had mass. They didn't move like they had size. They were too fluid and too rubbery. Wow, you're saying something truly controversial right now, right? I wasn't prepared for you to take <laughs> offense towards the special effects. I thought that was pretty unassailable, no matter what you thought of the movie. But really, I think this is a still a step up. I think they keep refining these Transformers. I thought it looked better, frankly. That's one of the few complaints I don't have. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you, Arnie, in the sense that in all that underwater stuff, it was difficult to always really get what was going on. But one thing they clearly had in this movie was more money and more time to make even the Transformers from the previous movies animate them further, more detail than they had last time. And, and maybe that's what went against it. Maybe with the more detail, maybe that took something away from you. But certainly this was viewed as a, a big step up. Really? The only thing that would have made it a step up from the last one is if I could tell the Transformers apart, which I still couldn't. 
I think it's just hard to do underwater stuff still. I mean, I think even with computer technology the way it is, that stuff always kind of stands out. And it looks like an effect. I'm not going to say it's seamless, but I still think it looked pretty great. Now, Arnie, I do agree with you with all the extra characters. I think it starts to get confusing. I mean, in that opening scene in Shanghai, when the Autobot concept car Corvette Sideswipe is attacking the Audi A8 Decepticon, I can't even think of his name. There were times where I was not really sure what was attacking what. I think part of that for me is that I just didn't really like what the robot modes were all the time, given what the cars were. It just didn't seem sometimes to me like, how could that possibly transform into that? But I I think they at least animated what they wanted to animate. I just didn't agree with the stylistic choice. One of the things I did like that I don't remember seeing the last time is that Optimus brandishes some like I don't know what it, what would you call them blades that come out of his hand and they get hot like he actually can heat his metal and like cut through other people with them those were kind of cool I thought it was nice to see him with a sword but you don't bring a knife to a gunfight Optimus <laughs> well clearly that's why he's dead <laughs> again I can't believe they'd go back there after traumatizing all those children and losing the franchise back in 1986 let's Repeat it. <laughs> Let's hurt the children that bought the toy again. At least we know it's not going to stand, right? Nobody was under the illusion that Optimus was gone for good and that we'd get Rodimus for the second half of the movie. <laughs> if we'd seen Hot Rod as one of the multiple Transformers introduced earlier, I might have thought they were going that way. But I think it's great because if you think what's iconic about Transformers, Optimus Prime dying may be the number one moment. I don't think, Stuart, you could name another plot point from the cartoon series. Oh, absolutely not. And it's the, I, like I said, it was playground conversation. Everyone talked about it. I, even I had opinion and I'd never even seen it. So you see, having Megatron kill Optimus this early in the movie, straight call back to the animated film. I think that was a good thing to do. And they rectified the mistake of the animated film. He wasn't dead when the credits rolled. That said, I do feel like the movie up to this point, while not as strong, for lack of a better word, as the last movie, I feel like this is the moment when Optimus dies that I go from not really liking this movie to out and out hating this movie. I have to admit, when I first saw the movie, I was actually expecting Optimus Prime to stay dead throughout this movie and just come back in the next one. I thought this movie, like I said earlier, being entitled Revenge of the Fallen, would have left the Autobots in a place to where they really lost this time, and that Prime would have come back next time. I, I was surprised he came back in the same movie that he died in. He could have been the Han Carbonite, you mean? Like, Perhaps. something that they could revive sure. for Dark of the Moon. Of course, if that's the case, you kill him at the end. He makes a heroic sacrifice. Good point. Very good point. Stuart, you said you hated this movie after this point. I will say that more than the cartoon, even though I'd been watching Optimus Prime for many years on TV with the cartoon way died here, I actually was kind of sad to see him go. I liked his presence specifically in this movie. I liked every time he spoke, he brought a weight. The voice actor just did such a great job and he was used the right way. He was a combatant, but also trying to be a bit of a diplomat and in a bad place. You kind of felt bad for his arc. He was about to be exiled off earth and i kind of liked him because when he was talking to that aide he goes if you ask us to leave we will but ask yourself what if we go and you're wrong i liked prime in this movie and then they kill him and he was really the only thing that i did like in this movie and i mean what are we replacing him with mudflap and skids yeah exactly now you're really getting into it which is that with him gone 
what do the Decepticons do? What do the Autobots do? I feel like there's no center to the movie anymore. Like, there's no reason why the Fallen can't take over, and yet he doesn't return until the last five minutes of the film. And they're still obsessed with getting Sam, although they have two shards of the cube, and all of the knowledge contained there within. It's No, the knowledge is only on Sam's brain. So there's no point to having the cubes? It brought Megatron back to life. That was it. Yeah, that was the end of Shard 1. Shard 2, they use it on Jetfire, and it's gone. And the knowledge is in Sam's brain. So they still need Sam to find the location of the sun-destroying machine. I would have liked with Optimus dead, you know, this time it seemed like, again, they streamlined the characters. There weren't as many Autobots that really, even though we get a whole bunch of them at the beginning, when this movie takes off after Prime dies, all we see are Mudflap Skids and Bumblebee. I would have liked to have seen the Autobots in disarray and how the government was reacting to the death of the leader more and see a bit more of Prime's death having an impact to someone other than Sam. I think the big mistake of this movie, well... I guess that could be argued, but for me, one of the big mistakes of this movie was the fact that for the a great majority of, oh, let's say the back half of the movie, your central characters, the humans, only have like Gids, Mudflap, and Bumblebee, and that's it. You have the two most annoying Autobots and one that can't talk. Really? Let, let's, we've been circling around. Let's hit Skids and Mudflap hard right now, let's, shall we? Absolutely. I got my stick out. But first, Jerry, background. What's the canon for these two yahoos? Yeah. I've got to know where this is coming from before I accuse anyone <laughs> of the bigotry that is just in your face. Stuart, I think you can go ahead and do it. <laughs> the characters as we see them, as far as I know, the name Skids was a G1 character that was actually literally in one episode of the show, had a really dull car. But in terms of a character, it's just another trademark name. These two characters, as far as I know, reference nothing other than Michael Bay thinking they're funny. No one is going to mistake Mudflap and Skids as anything other than characterizations of black hoodlum kids who wear gold teeth are illiterate, fist bump, beat up on each other, right? I mean, they play into every offensive stereotype that could possibly be imagined. And here's what I wonder. Are they thinking is it's not racist if it's said by a robot? Or does Bay not even make the connection that the ethnicity is tied into something much uglier and darker in, in American history? Does he not really get the fact that he's playing into a stereotype we've all tried to move beyond? Well, giving them the name Mudflap and Skids, you're giving them black names. Literally the color black. And Mudflap is voiced by an African American. Strangely enough, Skids is voiced by the whitest looking voiceover actor I've ever seen, and he also did the voice of Wheelie. But they've got the gold tooth on each of them. They're obviously coming from the same trope that Anthony Anderson did in the last film. Now, whether you consider that racist is a different thing. I mean, they're black stereotypes, but this film's full of stereotypes. It's not just anti-black, it's anti-human. <laughs> I guess that's the case you can make for Bay is he's not trying to offend anyone with this one stereotype. He's offending everyone with his very lowbrow sense of humor. I mean, this scatological quality of this movie is shocking. Uh, yeah, look what he does to poor Simmons, John Turturro. He calls him a 
pubic fro head. But I do know this. It's not the kind of thing you would want children to play with, buy toys of. Like, we really do not need to bring back mammies <laughs> and these kinds of imagery anymore. I think that this is uncalled for. And yet there were the toys aplenty of both characters. <laughs> oh, God. Even in their ice cream truck mode, fortunately, the toys were smart enough not to put the suck my popsicle Decepticon label on the toy. <laughs> yeah. Mudflap and skids are, are meant to do anything but serve as object of our ridicule. And given that they are cast as such iconically old school Jim Crow black stereotypes... I don't feel comfortable, even if they were funny laughing at them. But fortunately, they're not funny. I don't think this is coming out of nowhere. Clearly, it's a poor choice for the movie. But the one thing that, you know, for, number one, I kind of gave it the benefit of the doubt that it's not necessarily just, you know, a black stereotype in so much as just a degraded youth of some variety. But the one thing that popped in my head, though, is I actually didn't feel like that Michael Bay put these in here as to make fun of them. I, I think he was trying to portray them as being the two cool Autobots. And the reason I say that is because th he tries to give them the fine lines. I didn't laugh, but you can tell he was trying and at the end i don't remember which one of them it was the green one did something quite heroic so i don't think he tr made the movie to try to make us be you know against them i think he actually thought he was trying to create two characters that we could actually find ourselves liking failed miserably but i just don't feel like that he was trying to put them down i agree with you that i don't feel like bay would have created something to degradate a race that wouldn't be the aim or the hope or even probably the thought in his head but it nevertheless plays out into stereotypes and ideas that people hold of black youth that is simplistic and not very flattering. And I feel like they're not very heroic. They end up defeating a robot at the end, but it's really only through buffoonery. It is not through intellect, cunning, or, you know, even transforming back into their ice cream car and being able to fight. I mean, they're not even a cool vehicle. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? They do exist to be mocked. I don't think they're cool. I don't think anybody would think that they're hip. They would just think that they're silly and crazy. To draw a parallel to Jar Jar Binks, I mean, most people think of Jar Jar Binks as a terrible CGI monstrosity that ruins a film, and these could be that too, but Jar Jar Binks' intent was to be comic relief with accidental heroism, and I believe Mudflap and Skids are also comic relief with accidental heroism. And I just want to go on record, we're not reviewing Star Wars right now, but I would not hold Jar Jar Binks as the same crude stereotype. That's To me, it's not the same thing. The one thing I will say, like I said, I, I saw this movie twice in theaters, like within a week that it opened. Every time those two spoke and said certain things, the audience just laughed hysterically. Save me. <laughs> but they did get the reaction, I think, that Michael Bay wanted. I think people that make films ought to hold themselves to a higher standard than people that necessarily watch them. <laughs> I'm sure people could watch that and just see the silliness of them and not be troubled by how it plays it into a larger portrait of stereotyping ethnic groups. And that's fine but if i were making something like that and certainly marketing to children and making toys of them i would be hypersensitive of it and i feel like there is no sensitivity in a michael bay movie everything here is grandiose and over the top and it's unfortunate intentionally or not that this is the portrayal on screen 
you say that the filmmaker should be held higher. The thing is, you look at all the other humor Michael Bay has. He doesn't, though. He is really trying to <laughs> insert the crude humor for that level of audience. Which is why I'm not ready to, you know, declare him racist or take this into the cause of a larger debate about racial stereotypes. The movie's just offensive in general in the second half. People are running around with their pants down, screaming for underwear. It's just, it's scatological. There's a robot with a giant testicles bobbing around. <laughs> I mean... Well, technically they are wrecking balls. Yeah. My point is that somewhere along the lines, nobody told Bay he's not funny. And, <laughs> and somebody needs to. But yeah, because truly, the jokes in the second half of this movie particularly are just loathsome. I mean, how many things need to hump each other? I mean, you got Wheelie humping Michaela's leg. We had the dogs humping earlier. Like, I just feel like even Rain Wilson is like kind of being sleazy as the astronomy teacher uh, on the, the girls in the front row. I'm like, is everyone just sexed up here? Like... It is age inappropriate for an all family experience. I, you talked about not wanting to bring your son to this movie. I get it now. I would not want to expose children <laughs> to this movie. I just don't know if it got to the point of offensive. It was just stupid, you know? It offended me on a humor level that someone would think that this was hilarious. This is really stupid and, you know, not even like dumb fun. Yeah, I mean, as the parent here, my son was eight when this movie came out. No way. My son's 10 now. There's still no way. I mean, I just bought this movie on Blu-ray just for this review. I wouldn't even own it. So, that, no, there's no way my kid's going near this this movie. But specifically for why? Oh, Arnie, I mean, come on. It, it's obvious. It's every little bit of it. The humping is stupid. But funny. That actually, come on. Wheelie humping the leg was amusing. To who? To you, Arnie? Come on, Arnie. It's not funny. If it was just the humping and nothing else, okay, I could ignore that. That was a split second. The portrayal of skids and mudflap, along with their language. That's the other thing. I mean, honestly, I hate the fact that my Transformers, the robots, the heroic Autobots, are using some of the language they use. Even the scene with Alice and some of what we see on screen, it's all over the place. I mean, from beginning to end, the I'm approaching alien scrotum. I mean, it's just it, the, the lowbrow humor. I don't want my son anywhere near it. And, and I'm going to say this. Megan Fox is in this movie and i get a butt shot of john turturro really <laughs> i guess i can understand not wanting an eight-year-old to see it but 10 or under i'll agree i think 10 to 13 you no. gotta know the kid wow no way once they hit puberty this is where their mind goes this is the mindset of michael bay he is perpetually 13 it appears to me so but i think it would be younger kids would be like Jerry's son on the first movie, you wouldn't necessarily notice Megan Fox arching her back so much. You'd notice the cars fighting and think about the cool cars. It was subtler in the last movie. This one, it really is flagrant. And I feel like, like I said, plot points. The balls swinging in between his legs. How do you avoid giant scrotums <laughs> swinging around? It's inescapable this time. They have pushed it too far. <laughs> And for no reason other than humor that's not funny. I mean, if nothing else what this movie does, it forces me to see Dark of the Moon without my son first to screen it. I just took my son to see the first Transformers movie just out of the gate. So if I had done that on this one, I mean, we, we would have walked out. I'm not a parent. I'm talking about myself. I didn't want to be subjected <laughs> to all this crap. I found it offensive. I wanted protection from this movie.
Okay, you're right in that, again, it goes back to what you said earlier, Bay's not funny. Every time they try to make a joke, I think he just goes for the potty humor because he's not sophisticated in his humor. His movies lack subtlety in every way, including their humor. I mean, the parents go to France, and there's a mime there, and they're eating snails. I'm like, really? Have you ever even thought a culture beyond what its grossest stereotypes are? I mean, I just feel like everything here is so cartoonish. This guy it's astounding to me what he doesn't know as a technical wizard he's great they should keep him for all of the special effects shots but i just don't know how you could let this guy tell a story again nothing offended me so much as pubic frohead that's just wrong i think wheelie gets all the bad lines but poor john taturo he deserves better than what happens to him personally and professionally in this film (laughs) (laughs) i didn't need him in any Transformers movie. I said the last time I felt like he was miscast. I feel like this should have been a straighter Arrow character. And here, I, there's really no point to bring him in here. This rivalry between the hacker roommate and all of that. His whole character arc is supposedly a redemption storyline in which he's going to defend the country that has disowned him. Does he even do that? He does order the railgun that stops the Fallen from shutting off the sun, so yeah, I guess so. No, he actually only stopped Devastator, but the Fallen still went up and turned the thing on anyway. He just delayed it by minutes. If you're going to bring him back, you needed to give him a stronger arc. And, you know, these are larger points that we've been debating about who needed to come back and who didn't. And I feel like stronger choices needed to be made. I didn't need everybody to come back. I wasn't waiting for Simmons to come back. It was just not needed. I liked him better in this movie, though, than the last one. While I wasn't sitting around waiting for John Turturro's reappearance, when they bring him back, in the last movie, we all agreed that he was the wrong presence for that time. Here, as kind of a rogue crazy guy who has some knowledge and is now just running a website in the butcher shop, I don't know. I guess... Any port in a storm, but he was the bright spot of characters for me compared to who else we had floating around with mudflap skids and Sam. (laughs) Yeah, I actually liked Simmons in this a little bit just because I appreciated how him and Sam are now working together. And there's a lot of things you can kind of pick out about why, why did they do this? Was this really necessary? But the one thing that did happen is that, yeah, every one of these little elements became necessary to take us throughout the plot. You had to have Wheelie to identify the fact that that's the language of the primes. No one else could have possibly have known that. You needed Totoro or Simmons in there because he's the only one that would have had all these images from Sector 7 that would have made that connection in the first place. They're really minor parts that you think you could have written yourself out of, but they did serve a minor purpose. I'm a little frustrated because I want to gripe about why did they do that? They didn't need that. But it's like, oh, yeah, well, Wheelie was the only one to recognize the language because we know Mudflap and Skids can't read. Yeah. Well, (laughs) here's the thing. I feel like they're recycling the exact same plot of the last one. And I didn't think that was so great. I mean, the whole, you know, red herring about the map on the spectacles. Well, now we've got that same stupid premise with how do we find the matrix of leadership with this whole thing in Jetfire. I mean, it just it's too convoluted to get to where we're going to do what they're trying to do i feel like in trying to explain a backstory they actually make much more of a mess than they ever do in tidying up narratives what do you guys think about hearing that this object they're going after is actually called the matrix of leadership given our first review 
Well, of course, it reminded me of the cartoon, and, you know, it was kind of fun. It made me appreciate the effort I took to watch the cartoon, because the filmmakers have, and they're trying to incorporate some of that in a new way. I I thought that was fine. But again, it it ended up playing as so useless. I mean, they find the thing eventually, and then it breaks into dust, and then he fills his sock with it, and then that blows away, and for some reason, he comes back to life anyway. It's like, anything we did didn't really result and the end result, we just get to a happy ending because, damn it, we declare that we must have it. I feel like when you're writing, there are choices you make and you have to live by those consequences. And here, there were no more rules. At this point, anything we say is how it goes. And that matrix of leadership didn't have any power whatsoever. I mean, was it anyone's understanding that it actually accomplished anything to use that thing? Well, I mean, when Sam goes to Transformer Heaven, it's declared that it turned to dust because we wanted to make sure you were worthy, and now we're actually going to let you have it. Okay, kind of stupid. But, I mean, the fact that he had it, what resurrected Prime? I mean, he literally jabs it into Prime to resurrect him. Oh, I didn't even understand that. I honestly, at this point, I was just like, oh, they don't, he doesn't even have it, and Prime comes back to life. I didn't understand that that's what had transpired there, but it just... I felt like at this point, I had more or less given up. I mean, at this point, I just, <laughs> yes, it is clock watching. It is millisecond watching. You're just hoping that by any means necessary, this thing pulls the plug. And my problem with the Matrix of Leadership, I had a little bit of a thrill hearing, you know, that callback. Like, oh, they're bringing back the Matrix, especially when Prime's dead. You know it's going to somehow be involved, right? But like so many things, it's... From G1 in name only, there is an item named the Matrix of Leadership, but it's improperly named. It doesn't bestow leadership upon anybody, nor is it a Matrix. And come on, you couldn't play You Got the Touch, even eight bars for all the music I know, playing around I here? Really, Stan Bush comes cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Well, did you guys know that Stan Bush actually recorded a new version of The Touch that he submitted for this film? (gasps) It was rejected? How dare they, sir? Oh, wow. I agree. I would have had so much fun. It wouldn't have mattered how it sounded. Well, honestly, the rewrite that was done was kind of poor. Okay, then use the original. Obviously, Stan Bush wants you to. Jetfire. What the hell is this? I mean, that's when I knew this movie was not going to get any better. Was They're at the Smithsonian. People are getting tased and falling out of toilets. And they suddenly notice that the airplane that they've made come alive is a Decepticon. But he's no longer a Decepticon. He's just a cranky Scottishman who's on a mission to find something that was buried 17,000 years ago. And if you haven't found it by now, probably not going to. Jetfire was another one of those recycled names. But who knows what this character actually is. My thing is, I never got why he was, like, shut down in the the Smithsonian. How did all that happen? Mm -mm. Yeah. He's on a mission. He's pretty clear about he's on a mission to find where the Matrix of Leadership was buried. And how are you going to find that in D.C.? I Yeah, in a museum. But apparently he's been, like, shut down forever and he had to be reactivated by the spark, which, by the way, I have no idea how they knew to do that. It just makes no sense. And he brags about his father was the first wheel, Arnie. Yeah. So to <laughs> to your point, uh, what were they emulating when technology was that crude? They actually were wheels. Okay, I, I yes. missed that line, but uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, he's kind of hard to understand, but the most infuriating point is this guy is an old bomber, right? He's a jet and jet fire. And so he wants to take him back to where this all went happened in Egypt. And so they teleport. Wait, what? <laughs> no! You cannot do that. If you are a plane, you fly there. You do not teleport. That is impossible. I don't know. The way Jetfire was looking, I don't think that plane could have flown anywhere. But Yeah, the Fallen was moving around pretty good, but Jetfire seemed to have some trouble with mobility. It's like I said, at this point, I'm in active revolt. I knew that this one was not as good as the last one, which was imperfect to say the least. And now I'm hating the experience. All right. You see, and here, when they get to Egypt, is what I realized, for everyone who said this movie's worse than the last one, I don't get it. This movie's just as bad, but it's not worse, and it does some things worse. It does some things better. And it was at this point when I realized that what they're doing here is a blatant Indiana Jones ripoff. They are in Cairo trying to find some lost mystical artifact that could destroy people. It, it seemed to me like a really pale Raiders ripoff, and... I'm not enjoying it any less than the last one. If anything, I might be enjoying it more. Perhaps I'm just desensitized to what's happening now. Perhaps I've been assaulted so much that I'm becoming the uh, complacent abused. But I don't think you could say this one's worse. Uh, yes, oh, you I can. Yeah, and emphatically. Can. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's it's just hitting you in the face with how dumb it is. I mean, like I said, teleports. A plane teleporting. It can't get worse. It really it's can. an alien, though. I was willing to go with an alien that has the power of teleportation, especially since he's supposed to be so powerful in his day. I mean, eventually he sacrifices himself, or he's dying, and he says, take my parts and you'll have a power you never imagined. He's far more powerful than any Transformer we've seen before. He's just old. The information that was stored in the AllSpark is glyphs that they call are a map, which they're not a map. They're maybe directions, <laughs> but a map is a map. And the glyphs are to some code about, what is this, when the dawn alights the dagger tips, the king's reveal. Because Shia LaBeouf went to one astronomy class and read a textbook, he's able to figure out that they need to go to Jordan oh, and destroy God. artifacts over there. You just explained to me why Rain Wilson is in this movie. I'm like, why did he read that book? So that's how he knew about the three kings. It's because he ingested that book. Correct. I missed that. Thank God he showed up for one day of astronomy class. Yeah, I mean, even Leo makes that comment later. He he <laughs> says to him, you know, don't you remember from that astrology book? He's like, no, because we were only in college for two days. So, no, that, that was pretty clear. Yeah. They were uh, laughing at their own bad screenwriting at that point. They're like, yeah, can you believe this crap? Me either. <laughs> so, you know, of course, Mudflat and Skids, like, destroy the walls of Petra <laughs> so they can find the machine and they can find the Matrix of Leadership. And the thing crumbles to dust... And everyone's like, well, that plan didn't work. And Shia is like, nope, I believe it will work. So it's going to work. I mean, like, this is how feeble the writing is now. Like, people can just, like, sheer will something to be. Like, that would be like me getting in my car and being like, I'm going to fly now. I mean, <laughs> and you believe it will fly, <laughs> so it will. Yes, that's because I said it's going to. I mean, that's what I felt like at this point. The screenwriters are just like, because I said it's going to, that's how it's going to happen. They're not even trying to justify their own scattered writing, and it's embarrassing. I mean, this is just the worst. I don't know. Again, you're focusing on certain parts of it. I'm focusing on others. I liked 
that they introduced Jetfire and the Fallen. I like that we're getting a look into the ancestry and the powerful, larger Transformers. It seemed like an escalation here. And while the way things happen aren't exactly fulfilling or logical, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say this is a movie I'm rushing out to buy. (laughs) But overall, again, it just seems like they do some things right here. I can't hate on it unabashedly. There are some things that I feel against the onslaught from you two I have to defend. There's some good in here. Not much, but some. Okay. Already that blows my mind. This is just such a jumbled mess of a movie. There might be a couple little nuggets like, hey, the ancestry of how long Transformers have been on Earth. But that's not what this movie's about. You bring in Jetfire to say one line, teleport them to Egypt, hand Optimus his spare parts, which is ridiculous, by the way, and it's just so contrived and so, you know, we don't know how to get out of this corner. We'll just write a new character who says something, and now we move on. It's just, it's so, so terrible. I agree. It's like they're making it up as they go along, and you know what? They They were. were. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was a writer's strike, so... I mean, the best quote from Michael Bay himself says, We had three weeks to get our story, and really, we were going into the movie without a script. It's tough to do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's not advisable, particularly watching this. I mean, beautiful movies have come out of sheer chaos, and, you know, there are stories of that triumph out of not knowing what happens next and writing it as you go along. So I'm not going to say that that process is always a losing one but i've got to say if i've got no script and michael bay at the helm i'm running in the opposite direction <laughs> this is not going to be anything i want to watch the only joy i can say to the ending last movie i enjoyed the last 40 minutes even though i couldn't understand them the only thing i even liked watching was the i think there it's the constructicons right when the whole like crane and bulldozer and all form the giant thing and start sucking up the sand that i would think anyone would have to admit that's just for sheer wow factor that's cool to watch i was down with it because devastator was like the toy i wanted as a kid and could never have i think i had like his leg and i used to transform him into the leg and wish i had the rest so yeah seeing devastator show up in the constructor cons that did get a geek joy out of me a little geek gasm there yeah and it's totally understandable I had a geekgasm. I don't even know what these things are, but it's just that is a great moment. And uh, I feel like that could have been The Fallen. I feel like it was tougher than The Fallen. I felt like that was a more formidable foe than this thing they've been building up for the entire movie. I actually didn't care for Devastator. I think he was beautifully animated. I mean, I don't know if you guys guys have probably heard the story about how Devastator, when they first ran, I guess, that program or whatever the right terminology is, it's like melted ILM computers and servers. I mean, it was like a big deal. Oh. I love seeing it on my TV to where the movie went from typical widescreen format with the bars on the top and bottom, and then a lot of those scenes were done in, in the IMAX format and filled up my entire screen of my TV, and that was really cool to watch. I mean, for that purpose alone, I applauded, but what killed me about it, I wish the Constructicons as individual robots had been key characters throughout to where I heard them talk, heard them scheme, knew they were involved in the plot to where when they formed up later... 
it would have been a big wow to me. Otherwise, I took it as we threw Devastator in for the sake of throwing Devastator in because that's what people will like. Yes, and I agree with you. I'm not saying that it was expertly worked into the story. I'm saying it was a fun visual to watch. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And as I tend to turn off my brain in the climax of these films and just ride the ride, that was the only part of this ride at the end I enjoyed taking. The rest of it was just noisy and obnoxious, and I just couldn't stand it, frankly. But any time that this Constructicon was on screen, I thought it was really, really neat. And almost redeemed the climax. I suppose my problem with Devastator here is I had the geek moment when he was forming. But once he formed, I'm like, how is he really any cooler or more powerful than anything else around him? Why did it take six robots or however many it is in the movie to build him? And I didn't necessarily even like the way he came together. I would have preferred more of a let's go Voltron type of assembly rather than what we got here. I realize this may be more realistic, but it wasn't quite as impressive. And when he formed, I wanted it to be a mega bad that he never ends up being. So so much of the last 10 minutes just feels arbitrary. The military, they get rid of Galloway and they land and they've dropped off Optimus so that he can be revived. And then they're sending up flares for what? What are they even doing there? Well, First, I I just got to say that the scene where they dispose of Galloway was my favorite scene in the movie. That was an example of humor that worked. When he pulled that ripcord and Lennox yells at him, don't pull it now. I actually thought that worked. The entire time I'm watching the movie, that's the only time I laughed. But to the question you asked, they're shooting up flares actually just try to get Sam's attention let him know where they're at. Because he can't see the giant Optimus Prime. He is laying down dead. Yeah, with him laying down, they covered him up. I don't know why they covered him up exactly, unless they just didn't want Decepticons to fly by and see him. But that didn't bother me in so much as that Sam and Michaela have to take far more screen time to get to Optimus than what it could have possibly taken in real time to get to Optimus. (laughs) This part of the movie was endless for me. I actually wrote, when I could take no more of this movie, when I just had taken all I could, I hit the info button to see how much more was to Mm. go, and there were 42 minutes. I actually have a running time of like 32 minutes to go. Please end. Please end. 17 minutes to go. More slow motion jiggle. I hope it's 7 minutes of slow motion jiggle and 10 minutes of credits. I feel like the Fallen, for when he finally shows up, and Optimus, he just assumes Jetfire's power. It's all very garbled, but... You know, I expect that there would have had to be a scene with Autobots fitting parts on him. No, they just magically fly across the desert onto him. It will work, because I say it will. (laughs) I mean, that mantra becomes that magical thinking. I mean... I remember this from my first viewing in the theater. I hadn't been paying this movie any attention except when things were blowing up. And I'd look up and be like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then go continue to talk to my friends in the car. But when someone actually in the car said, wait, is he in Transformer Heaven? I still don't know. Is what that was something, wasn't what? it? I couldn't believe that he died and went to Transformer <laughs> Heaven. <laughs> and that Transformers who apparently are in a spirit realm, robots are able to resurrect Mm. a human Mm. body. I mean, this is a disaster piece, right? I mean, at this point, this (laughs) is the worst. This is just (laughs) the pits. I can't believe how bad this is. Arnie, this is unmeasurable amounts worse than the last movie or, or the cartoon. This is the bottom of the barrel. All right. The last 42 minutes are orders of magnitude stupider. No, Arnie. All two hours and 30 minutes of this movie are orders of magnitude. 
substitute stupid. <laughs> I gotta agree. And I just feel like, yeah, the Fallen is taken out way too quickly for a movie that's built around him. He's suddenly dead, and Starscream yet again survives. Did Megatron die? What even happened to him? No, Megatron's the one who Starscream says sometimes cowards survive. So Megatron and Starscream run off to fight another day, and the Fallen falls. Now, Megatron is missing half of his face, by the way, but, I mean, he's... Yeah, they're machines. they'll, They'll have a mechanic. Wait till the next one. Well, let's roll out to the end here. Because the Fallen does die. Prime is resurrected more violent than ever, and he kicks the Fallen's ass. And I'm just really just watching the clock tick more than I'm watching the animation anymore. This has been too much for me. I think the only person that walks away from this thing feeling satisfied is Michaela, because she finally gets Sam to tell her the L word. But it's unfortunately for her means leave. I'm going to make one more of these without you. (laughs) Well, I guess the only thing left to throw out there is the incredible amount of money this movie made was just mind-blowing, though. Yeah. Despite all of its inherent problems that everyone seems to collectively agree, I don't think anyone would tell you this is perfect. It seems like there's something stronger about it that really connects with people. I know people that have seen this dozens of times, and they're like, I just love it. I can't stop watching it. It's it's like crack. You know, I hate to say it, but my opinions of people can often be boiled down to a movie conversation. Conversation. I think this might be one of those cases. <laughs> I know. I understand the thrill of seeing these visual effects run around. I, I, I get that. But honestly, there's so much that's offensive to me. I guess that's what I would say, is that for whatever pleasures I took out of the simple things, there's so much here that's just garish and obnoxious and vile. I just, it counterweights anything good. I feel like, did you see the movie? I know that you saw the effects, but did you see the movie? It's a mirage to some people. I guess you see what you want to see in it, but uh, it was undoubtedly cleaned up. You know, they put it out in IMAX, and that certainly helped, and it's inspired them. Now that they're making a 3D one, one wonders if that won't be the most profitable one of all. (laughs) But before I say my piece, Stuart, Jerry, do you recommend Transformers Revenge of the Fallen? Stuart? Absolutely not. This movie is heinous. And I have had (laughs) problems with this entire series. I mean, from the get-go, I didn't watch the show. I didn't understand the cartoon. I found all of these very testing to my patience, to my ability to appreciate film. It is almost the antithesis of what I look for when I watch a movie. But I have found things to like in all of these films up until this point. And and at this point, no. I feel like what is negative here is so negative, any enjoyment that could be gained from watching very cool-looking robots blow up things is totally negated by a stupid, stupid non-movie experience. I just can't comprehend how anyone could want to ride this ride it's it to me it is just the pits and it didn't start out that way i mean i thought the last movie kind of worked i felt like the beginning was barely working but once optimus dies so did any affection i had for really this franchise transformers 3 is going to have to do a lot of work because right now we're three for three and this is the strongest not recommend of the bunch Jerry. Yeah, I mean, if it's not obvious, I cannot recommend this movie to anybody. I mean, and you bought it! Arnie, you wouldn't be the first person! How dare you throw good stones at glass houses, Arnie? Don't you hold a man-thing figurine? 
Hey, to be clear, I bought it only for this review and just so I could have the convenience of watching it when I wanted versus tying up a Netflix rental or renting it from a store. No, it, it, to be fair, I got fairly cheap on Amazon. But one of the reasons, you know, to, to be serious about it for a second, one of the reasons I did buy it is because I knew I would have to watch it across days. I could not possibly sit down and watch this in one setting. I knew this would be at least a two, if not three, evening event to watch this 45 minutes at a time or what have you. I actually did in two, so it was a little bit better. When I first saw this movie in theaters, I was actually just upset. I didn't get why this movie was so obscure. I didn't get why they brought in this fallen character not to do anything more with him. I, I, like I said, I kind of wish this movie had had a little bit more of a darker The Decepticons win feel versus just the last 10 minutes Optimus Prime comes back to life, saves the day, and everybody's happy. It's just, it wasn't fulfilling. The movie was clearly 45 minutes longer than it needed to be, if not longer. I think they could have eliminated, with some smarter writing, some of the various elements that tightened up that may have helped a little bit. And Stuart echoed everything around just the, the level of humor and, and just how it offends. I guess more of the Transformer fan in me is offended because I didn't want to go see this Transformers movie. So how it made as much money as it did blows my mind. I, I will never watch this movie again, most likely, un- unless it just comes up as like a dare or something. But you know, it's just not worth anybody's time to watch. If even if you enjoyed the first one a little bit, which I did, just because I, I think it was kind of fun, had a lot of problems, a lot of plot holes, and we talked those already. But it, it had some fun to it. I recognized the characters, and I could go along with it. It, it was just simple and straightforward, and it didn't offend me on any level. This movie offends me on every level. I mean, morally, as a Transformers <laughs> fan, it's not even entertaining. So. I strongly recommend against this movie. And yet, for some reason, I'm really looking forward to seeing the next movie, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> you know, Jerry, since you said you had to watch this one in pieces, I have to ask, Stuart, you couldn't make it through the last one in one sitting. Did you make it through this um, one in one sitting? You're going to bust me on this. I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> How did you fall asleep in such a noisy film? <laughs> because I had procrastinated all night and I was started watching it at midnight because I couldn't bear the thought of having to watch it. And then, well, I don't know. It was difficult. It did spread out over a couple of days. But I did see it twice because the first time that I watched it, I didn't feel like I understood it enough. The second time I did more or less watch it in one sitting, I still don't feel like I understood it. May May I never understand it. I also watched it twice, once to get lines for the credits, and then once actually for the review. And in my summation, again, I obviously am not going to recommend this film, but allow me to damn it with some faint praise. To those of you, including on this call, who complain that this one is so much worse than the first, I just don't see it. And maybe I think less of the first than you guys, or maybe I think more of the second, but to me, in many ways, this was a less confusing film, there were less characters on screen for most of the time, both human and robot, the plot was very simple in its basic elements. They were all chasing a MacGuffin. It was like Raiders of the Lost Arks if you replaced Nazis with giant robots. This movie isn't good, but in many respects, it's better than the first. But I'm, I'm kind of splitting hairs here. This movie sucks. And <laughs> I wanted it to be over 42 minutes before it was. If you could cut 50 minutes out of this movie, though, it might have been a faint recommend. But no, not, 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 not recommend. But like Jerry, I hate myself for it. It's like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. What does it mean when on the third time you're actually bringing me into theaters after two movies I don't like? (laughs) But every time they show this Dark of the Moon trailer, 
I forget I'm seeing a Transformers trailer. And I'm taken back to kind of the same feeling I had with Super 8, with this feels very Spielbergian, and I like that it's a period piece, and that they're putting a conspiracy theory. What movie is this? I want to see this movie. This movie looks good, but it's a Michael Bay Transformers film. But yeah, this one, I'm like you, Stuart. I'm zero for three, but yet I'm actually hopeful that number four might be the one to get a recommend from me because it looks like it's more ambitious. It looks like it might be more intelligent just based off the trailers. I have no knowledge other than what I've seen in that trailer. But on the trailer alone, I'm thinking they're trying to do something new that's going back in time a little bit, but not 17,000 BC. And it could work for me. So going into it, I'm hopeful. Well, you know, when I saw X-Men, I think it was summed up by just someone that just spoke aloud in the theater. They saw the trailer and they were like, that's a Transformers movie? They didn't even recognize it. They're selling this way in a much more sophisticated fashion. It does not feel like they're selling the Rock'em Sock'em robots as much. I feel like, good or bad, this one might be story-driven. And that gets me a little bit excited, but not too excited. <laughs> but, you know, it's so hard to judge a movie from a trailer, right? Sure. So, what we're seeing could literally be the two-minute 17,000 BC prologue of then two and a half hours of robots punching each other in 3D. <laughs> but the movie actually opens tonight. Are either of you going to the midnight show? I will be there. I got my keys in my hand just waiting for you to shut up so I can leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will be back next Tuesday with our Dark of the Moon review. Till all are one. All races united by a history long forgotten and a future we shall face together. I am Optimus Prime, and I send this message so that our pasts will always be remembered. For in those memories, we live on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Transformers Movie Retrospective Series. Tell Grimlock about Petro Rabbits again. Remember to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Transformers film leading up to the weekend of release review of this summer's Transformers, Dark of the Moon. Never seen anything like this before. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as Terminator, X-Men, Star Trek, Predator, and many more, as well as individual movie reviews such as Avatar, Inception, Howard the Duck, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Your, your friends will love it. Sure, it's a lot of fun. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Transformers movies with other listeners. Are you not surprised to see us? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. We are here. We are waiting. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. I owe you my life. We are in your debt. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. Just ask yourself, what would Jesus do? You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. Like us, there's more to them than meets the eye. 
Now Playing's Transformers Retrospective Series is edited by Jerry, Carlos, and Arnie. Did you know it was going to be this hard? Can you just stop? Now Playing is not affiliated with Hasbro Incorporated, Paramount Pictures, DreamWorks Pictures, or 20th Century Fox. Not a word until we get a lawyer. Transformers and all that the Transformers universe contains is the property of Hasbro Incorporated and no infringement is intended. Okay, so what? I've, I've downloaded a couple of thousand songs off the internet. Who has it? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. There's something a little fishy about you, your son, your little Taco Bell dog, and this whole operation you got going on here. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Come on, showtime's over. We've got work to do. By the way, can I can I just ask, how is it possible that he can find on his radio every single little word that it is that he wants to speak? <laughs> I have I have Sirius XM, and there ain't that much out there, guys. I don't think that <laughs> Pointer Sisters is getting a lot of spins anymore, but Ooh, maybe yeah, I'm exactly. wrong. <laughs> maybe he's just going to miss his, t- his threesomes with uh, Michaela. <laughs> I know I would. <laughs> Over in the East Coast, do they not need a you know a lube job there? <laughs> Michaela can give me a lube job anytime. <laughs> oh no, I walked into that. Jeez. <laughs> wow, Stuart, what were you thinking, man? I don't know. <laughs> Clearly, I wasn't. <laughs> They're going after Michaela with the little R, you know, RC Bronco wheelie, wheelie, which is the same. Oh, that's the same one from the cartoon, isn't it? Well, it's the same name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if there's any other simulators okay. whatsoever. Yeah, I don't remember that wheelie humping. Uh, uh, what's his I'm... Spike's leg at all? But I thought that was Shockwave. No, Shockwave is uh, a gun. I thought yeah, that just... was Megatron. Megatron well, is also a gun. Just, just wait. <laughs> I can't it's, follow this series. <laughs> well, Stuart, Stuart, just wait to the next movie and you'll okay. you'll see Shockwave. I thought yeah. we were going to see Soundwave. <laughs> In Dark I want to just wave goodbye, yeah, but I guess we have to get through this. All right. <laughs> to me, that would be like me seeing Justin Bieber as Luke Skywalker doing a stage play of Star Wars in which Luke gets Leia as the girl and they're no longer brother and sister. I mean, at that point, what Star Wars is left? Give it 10 more years. We might very well get that production. (laughs) Well, you know, the one of the quotes of Megan Fox of why she didn't want to come back to the third movie was because she said that Michael Bay just treated her like a piece of meat. Now, Megan Fox, you kind of bring things on yourself on some levels but i mean yeah that's you know you are what you are but i mean at the same time that's very well known it sounded like the i mean i'm sure i don't know what the michael bay side of the story is but it she, but like i it was, think the michael bay side of the story is she's a hot piece of meat well but i mean yeah, in I, terms of like we didn't invite her back or she didn't want to come back oh yeah well there is that but who cares yeah. that's right. boring <laughs> This can maybe not go in, but I was really confused, and I never understood. I played it five times. When he does that scene where he strips down, and he's still wearing his, you know, Section 9, Section... When it Was it Sector, Sector seven. 7? When he's still wearing his Sector 7 underwear, he says something... Hold on, I wrote it down. I could not figure out what he said, but it sounded like... Hold on. He wears them when I'm gonna fuck. Do they say fuck? I didn't. Catch I could that. not tell you. I played it five times. 
I could not understand what he's saying. If I had thought about it, I would have turned on the subtitles and figured it out. But I couldn't believe. And he may not have said that, but I played it five times, and that's the only thing I could make I, out. It wouldn't I wear me. them when I'm in a funk. Oh. It did not sound that way to me. And I, like I said, I was really trying to, to find that it did not say that. I was like, there's no way they'd put this in here. And every time I play it, when I'm going to fuck, I'm like, really? <laughs> Wow. Who would lay the butcher? <laughs> I mean, the, the ultimate in defeat is that they have Starscream suddenly flying back in the picture, and they gather to resort to subtitles. There's actually a subtitle that says Starscream in pursuit, because they know if they just show us that, we would never figure it out. <laughs> this is how lost this movie is. Well, to be fair, that wasn't... I probably couldn't tell it apart from any other jet. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, that was actually Starscream talking, <laughs> you know, not just a, oh, by the way... Oh, he happened. said Starscream is in pursuit? He's talking? Yeah, yeah, they did that last movie too, with the subtitles show up first in Cybertronian, and then they flip and transform into oh, English words. I didn't words. hear him talking, so all right, well, all right, but well, it's a little bit better. But I felt okay. <laughs> I thought, well, he, okay. here's the funny yeah, thing: no, I think that footage is from the original movie too. I, I think there are some shots like that recycled. Mm. <laughs> that would be hysterical if, like, they put a subtitle: Sam looking through pyramids. <laughs> <laughs> but the movie actually opens tonight. Are either of you going to the midnight show? I will be there I, because I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't hide it. I'm about to lose control. And pee on Michaela. I don't think I'm going to like it. No. 